I'm Doug Fullington. I'm manager of audience education here at PMB. This is opening night of the Sleeping Beauty. We've got a nine show run. We've got five casts. Uh, this is a big ballet for us. It's a big ballet in the history of ballet for a lot of reasons. I'll talk about that some tonight. Uh, you'll see Leslie Rausch as Princess Aurora, Jerome Tisserand as Prince Florman tonight. And then we have some debuts coming up as well. And when we get to the end, I can talk a little bit about those in case some of you are coming back for more. It's a long ballet. I'll say it up front. There are three intermissions, but they're only 15 minutes each. And I'm told they'll be quite strict about it. So just plan it out, your strategy. You might order in advance if you want to have something at intermission. Works really well. You know, it's ready for you when you come out. So three 15s. We're out at 10.30, so there we are. They were worried about time when it premiered, too, actually, in 1890. They started cutting things in the second half of the ballet because they knew it was too long. I guess we can start there. Uh, Sleeping Beauty premiered in St. Petersburg in Russia in 1890, in January of 1890. It was special for a lot of reasons uh, in the repertory. Uh, one of the primary... Uh, elements of excitement was that the theater had commissioned Tchaikovsky for the score, and this was unusual for ballet. It wasn't unusual for opera, but uh, ballet was considered a lower art form for composers, because composers were going to be given a list of instructions by the choreographer about what the musical number should be, how long they should be, what instruments should be playing, what time signature they need to be in, and after it was written, they would often want to move things around or cut things or bring other music in. So it wasn't always that attractive. But Tchaikovsky liked ballet. He really liked the ballet Giselle. He had written Swan Lake in Moscow in 1877 under less, I, I would say, less productive circumstances. He really had a crack team in St. Petersburg. He was working with Marius Petipah, who was the ballet master in chief, if you will and had been since about 1870. He was uh, famous across Europe as a choreographer. They were attracting the best dancers, Russian-trained dancers, but also dancers from France, and they were beginning to bring in ballerinas from Italy. Uh, the director of the entire theater in St. Petersburg was a man named Ivan Vesevolovsky. He was a real Francophile, as was the entire court in St. Petersburg. They spoke French. They wrote in French. It was great for Petipah, who was French, and never apparently really learned Russian. Uh, and Sleeping Beauty was a ballet that really looked at French ballet. It looked at history in general. They were on the cusp of the turn of the century, and it was a period of time in which uh, art was starting actually to look back. There was a retrospective feel to it, which was kind of a first. So they had this sophisticated score from Tchaikovsky. They had Marius Petipah to choreograph. They had Vesevolovsky, who really helped put together the, the libretto, as we call it, for ballet, the same as we do in opera. Now, there aren't words, but there's a very detailed story. These stories were approved and published, and the public could purchase, I believe, the libretto in advance, as you could for an opera, and they could read it, they could prepare, they could know what they were going to see, and they did come with very high expectations and were extremely opinionated. If you read press reviews of ballet in 19th century, they, it's no holds barred. 
everything is said and every opinion is strongly, strongly held. Uh, they spend a lot of money on this ballet. They spend a quarter of the theater's budget, and that's not just for ballet, but for opera and drama as well. So that was an awful lot of money. One of the reviewers said you could call it the Sleeping Beauty or the Triumph of the Art of Sewing. There were, there were hundreds of... Uh, roles in The Sleeping Beauty, uh, dancing roles, non-dancing roles, children's roles. There were children in really every ballet, whether it was a short or a long ballet. We have children in ours as well. And it was a success at the beginning. Not a success with everybody who wrote about it, but there are some who will always want to write criticism because it's more fun. But uh, it was a success, and it really became the most popular ballet in the theater next to The Pharaoh's Daughter, which was a sort of action uh, Indiana Jones almost type from 1862. It was Petipa's first big success. <clears throat> that was the only rival of The Sleeping Beauty. Uh, the leading role was taken by an Italian ballerina, and this was also an interesting period <clears throat> because of these guest artists in St. Petersburg. In the early 1880s, uh, a couple of Russian ballerinas who were the leading uh, ballerinas of the company retired, and the uh, administration felt that there weren't Russian-trained dancers that could really take their place. There really weren't ballerinas, in quotes, if you will. So they began to import guest artists from Italy, and in Italy, the point work of the women was more... Um, technically advanced. Some of the things they do, the, the Russians who were more French trained would think they weren't too attractive, but you had to admire the skill, almost the acrobatic type skill. And the original Aurora in this Sleeping Beauty was an Italian ballerina. Her name was Carlotta Brianza. And she was the first Aurora in 1890. It was also a time when male dancing was a little uh, less than they had hoped as well. Just after the Sleeping Beauty, by the end of the 1890s, there would be a whole new generation of Russian men and women trained who could really take on the um, full extent of these roles. But in 1890, not as much. In fact, the first prince, and his name was Prince uh, Desiree or Desire in the original production. Uh, we have an English uh, translated uh, title for us here. Um, he was in his mid-40s and was not dancing solo dances, but he was a great partner and a great pantomime. He was doing that up through his 50s. And uh, later in his career, the younger dancers would come in and deputize for him in the dances. But that wasn't the case with Sleeping Beauty. When it came time for the prince's solo in the third act, it was danced by two fairies. Uh, which we sort of figured that out actually only in about the last three years. And that happened. It was Alexei Rotmonsky who said, we had looked at the notation of this dance and uh, I had thought it went to other music, and he said, you know, it really fits the Prince's variation better. And he was right. And it says that it comes right after the, the Adagio dance, so there it is, two women dance the, the man's variation. And uh, the Prince jumped in for the coda dance for a few bars of a basically sort of mazurka step, and that was it. And it was fine with the public. They didn't mind. Same thing happened in Nutcracker two years later. So the things we're learning... <clears throat> but it's really the role of Princess Aurora that interests us. I think let's talk through the ballet now. Um, oh, but one more thing. Uh, the genre of the ballet. Uh, this was called a ballet fairy or a fairy ballet. This was a new genre and people were really ambivalent about it. What it meant was that it was heavy on stage effects, uh, heavy on budget, 
looked great, great costumes, but thin on story. Uh, a lot of these action ballets like Daughter of Pharaoh had you know, 20, 30 page librettos. They were very detailed, uh, lots of pantomime, lots of story, many characters with dancing interspersed. The Ballet Ferry, which I believe was coming up through Italy, uh, made its way to St. Petersburg, was considered too light for some, not enough content. I think that the uh, saving grace here for beauty is uh, beauty were the collaborators. The fact that Tchaikovsky was going to write music in the same way he wrote symphonies with the same kind of weight, the same kind of development of the melodies that he would work throughout the ballet. So it was really on a grand scale. It wasn't light music, if you will. It was danceable, but it was in the same style that he would write a symphony. Uh, Vesevolozhsky putting the libretto together was very interested in the sort of symbolism that really was popular throughout the 19th century and throughout the Romantic era. So the ballet is filled with symbolism. Uh, scholars differ on what means what, but I think that's probably credit to the creators. It keeps people thinking. So let's start. We have a prologue to this ballet, which is as long as the other three acts. So it's really a ballet in four acts. <laughs> But technically, it's a prologue in three acts. And the prologue is uh, the christening, or the baptism, translated from Russian, of Princess Aurora. And Aurora means dawn. So there was a, a, an idea of a new beginning with this princess, uh, looking ahead and hope for the future and so forth. Uh, the king and queen have invited uh, fairy godmothers to the christening to give their gifts, but they've left one off the list, and that's the fairy uh, Carabas, whose name translates really to mean pimple. Um, uh, and it was a name that was used all the way back, I think, as early as the 16th century for wicked fairies. Well, they forgot to invite Carabas, so uh, all the other fairies are there, and they each dance a solo, and what the, uh, what the solos represent are gifts that they give to the child, and these are gifts of uh, character and uh, qualities and accomplishment. There's a gift uh, of candor or transparency. Candide was the original name of the first fairy, and that was the gift that she gave. Uh, there were gifts of uh, cultural accomplishment, gift of song, gift of dancing, but there was also a gift of temperament or the ability to rule. Uh, there was a breadcrumb fairy, because in Russian lore you would sprinkle breadcrumbs around the crib of the baby girl uh, for fertility so that she would have children when she grew up. And of course the princess would be expected to produce an heir. The head of the godmothers is the lilac fairy, and lilacs represented wisdom. And also in Russian lore, if you would set the baby underneath a lilac bush, sort of by osmosis, the child would become wiser. So there was quite a bit of thought given into these uh, attributes and characteristics that these fairy godmothers would give to the child. Well, Carabas has been left off the list, and she shows up, and she's mad mad as a hatter, and uh, she has a gift, and of course it's the gift that when the princess comes of age, she'll prick her finger on a spindle and she'll die. Well, the lilac fairy who trumps Carabas in uh, authority and hierarchy mitigates that and says she will prick her finger, okay, but she won't die, she'll fall asleep, and she'll be awoken by a kiss. So Carabas is not happy and 
storms off. And uh, that is the end of the prologue. So really, we, we know what's going to happen. Sleeping Beauty really isn't a ballet about suspense. Uh, it's, about, it's about how it's worked out and what the different things mean. Sure. Yes, I can. Uh, this was the fifth fairy. We have seven fairies in ours. I'll get to that too, and I'll try and make time. Uh, one fairy uh, points her fingers. Uh, it's so, sort of called a finger variation. And the, th the thinking is that this uh, also came from Italy, and it sort of represented a few things. Um, there were a couple of these fairy ballets from Italy, and in one there was uh, a character of Electra, and uh, the dance involved finger pointing, but it was intended apparently to show, and get this, positive and negative poles uh, based on the discovery of electricity by Alessandro Volta. So these, uh, and uh, here the thought was that one, Petipa who stayed up, Marius Petipa really stayed up to date on what was going on. He traveled quite a bit around Europe, often was in Paris, uh, I'm sure traveled to Italy as well, uh, and kept up on these trends. And so he uh, made a finger variation for uh, Violante, or the fairy of temperament, because he felt that that showed, uh, we believe, that the sort of spark and the spark of personality and the ability to rule that the princess should have. And that has stayed, you'll see it tonight, fingers pointing. There's nothing else like it in the repertory, really. There are photos we have of other finger variations, but I think this is the only one that's come down to us. So we get to the first act. Now, in the original, Aurora is 20. In ours, she's 16, so the age has been lowered. Uh, and she's uh, basically, she's a debutante. It's her birthday. She's going to be presented. And uh, the king and queen have invited four uh, aristocratic men. And she is supposed to choose uh, one of them to marry. So we're wasting no time. Uh, act one is an amazing act for Princess Aurora. For the dancer, it is a full ballet in a very short period of time. She has a, uh, a wonderful entrance. Petipa had a great way of building up the entrance for the ballerina in a ballet, and Tchaikovsky just met him right there with equal uh, excitement. And she comes tearing in and wonderful, sh quick, fast steps. They're youthful. They really show, uh, I think, are intended to show personality. Then we go right into the dance with the princes, and it's a famous dance. It's called the Rose Adagio. It's called the Rose Adagio because they hand her roses throughout. And the, uh, the choreographic uh, theme here is balancing. She takes the balance on one foot, and she takes the hand of each of the dukes as they are in our production and then later in the dance toward the end she does the same thing but each of them involves a slow turn so the uh, ability to balance I think is a representation again of the accomplishment of this young woman by the time that she is presented uh, is really shown through the choreography and uh, I th from what they tell me it's as hard today as it probably was in 1890. They had block shoes then, like we do now. Ours are blocked a little bit differently, but uh, it's uh, really asking for a lot of strength and control. 
and uh, that's what all the women dancing the role seek to show. Uh, Aurora has a solo after that in which she interacts with the princes. Then she has a coda. A coda was usually the final dance of a group of dances, and the coda is fast and includes bravura steps. So she started strong, and she has to end strong too. And at that point, um, Carabas, disguised as a hag, uh, comes on the scene, and of course she has a spindle, which Aurora's not seen before, but is uh, naturally curious about, and of course pricks her finger, and then there's a vertigo dance, and then she's down, and <laughs> then that's it. There's a little bit of rest. So, but an amazing first act, uh, really a terrific first act, very tightly structured, moves along really well. And uh, of course, the Lilac Fairy comes on the scene and reminds everybody, uh, it's only going to be a hundred years. <laughs> and she puts everybody to sleep. And the, the idea is that the uh, passage of time is shown by the vines growing up over the, the palace, which will sleep for a hundred years. Now, in the original, and I think somewhat in ours too, these first two acts, prologue and act one, were set in the uh, 17th century, so that when we get to the second act, we've moved up to the 18th century and uh, the time of the King Louis, especially Louis XIV, who is credited for setting up the first uh, uh, professional music academy, which had a dance, uh, dance department, if you will, and that was the way that the Paris Opera Ballet uh, was eventually formed and allowed uh, non-aristocratic people to become professional ballet dancers. And uh, they were thinking about this in 1890, and they were wanting to pay homage to it. So in the second act, we're in the 18th century. In the Baroque period, we meet the prince. Uh, he's out on a hunt with the other courtiers, and something's not quite right. He's not feeling settled. Uh, he's not completely happy. He doesn't know quite why. So when it's time for the hunt to continue, he sends everybody on, and he's going to have a contemplative uh, walk in the woods. And of course, Lilac Fairy, uh, ever vigilant, takes advantage of the moment and asks the prince what's wrong. And he says he's not sure. And she says, well, why don't I show you a vision of a sleeping princess? Which she does. And then we have a wonderful scene where Aurora is presented as a, a shade or a shadow, if you will as a ghost, and that's her first meeting of the prince. She's a vision, and she's accompanied by a corps de ballet of women. And this scene really looks back to about 50, 60 years earlier in the 1800s, right in the, the middle of the Romantic period when we had ballets like Giselle with the Willies in the second act, who are basically vampires. La Sylphide with the Sylphides out in the Scottish Highlands. These, these ballets about supernatural, elusive uh, characters were very popular, and that's just what we have in this scene. The princess is elusive. He can't quite reach her, but he's drawn to her for a, in an almost supernatural way. Uh, I love that the original uh, corps de ballet in this scene were naiads, because the lilac fairy arrives on a boat on the river, and the naiads come out of the water, and they all had seashells on their head. This is a great picture of one peeking through the reeds, and she has a sh conch shell right up here. It's great. They loved props and things back then. So a lovely scene that's a retro, retro scene in 1890. 
and uh, the prince, uh, the dance ends and she, she uh, flits away and of course he's so enamored and says, take me to her. So they begin a voyage to the palace. And uh, when they reach the palace, he of course has to, um, has to uh, find where she is so he can plant the kiss and so forth. I'm going to stop here just for a second, just talk about sort of the pedigree of our particular production. Sleeping Beauty was very popular in Russia. When Serge Diaghilev put together his Ballet Russe, famous Ballet Russe between 1909 and 1929, uh, he made the one-act ballet really famous, but he also loved the uh, tradition from St. Petersburg, so he produced The Sleeping Beauty under the title The Sleeping Princess in London in 1921. He sank everything into it, and it did not do well at the box office because he had trained an audience to want a mixed bill of short works, and they thought this was too long and too colossal, but it really did bring Sleeping Beauty to the West. And after that kind of financial fiasco, they would perform the final act under the title Aurora's Wedding, and that stayed in the repertory of all the ballet russe companies into the 1960s. Uh, Another way that Sleeping Beauty came west was by way of one of uh, Petipa's last ballet masters, whose name was Nikolai Sergeyev. He left Russia right at the time of the revolution and brought with him a lot of detailed uh, written choreographic notations documenting the steps of these ballets. And he was able to stage this. He did work on the 1921 production, but he also staged it in London for the company that would become the Royal Ballet. And it became the calling card for the Royal Ballet. When they reopened the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden in 1946 after the war, it was with the performance of The Sleeping Beauty with Margot Fontaine. And the Queen was there, and the Queen Mother, and Queen Mary. It's a great picture of all of them. The Queen's so much in the news lately. It's nice to know we have a connection through ballet. Uh, and our production is very closely modeled on the Royal Ballet production. Uh, it's staged by Ronald Hind, who joined the Royal Ballet in 1951, just five years after that reopening of Covent Garden. Uh, around the same time, his uh, wife, Annette Page, also joined the Royal Ballet. She would dance Aurora regularly during her career. And uh, this production that we have was originally set by them for English National Ballet in 1993. Uh, we acquired the sets and costumes in the year 2000, and it's been in the repertory ever since. We are uh, retiring the production after this run because we have gotten maximum use out of the scenery and costumes, and I think we can look for a new production in not too many years going forward. But uh, we have a nice pedigree in this production. But I just mentioned that before talking about the end, because as is the case with many 19th century ballets, they have morphed and changed over time. Uh, sort of copyright issues don't apply with works that old, but there are classic works in the canon that oftentimes when they're restaged have some changes made, some additions made by those who are staging it, and so they each production has its own particular character. And the same for ours. It's very closely modeled after Royal Ballet, but Ronald has made some of his own choreography for the Garland Dance in the first act. Uh, there's a 
uh, divertisement for the gold and silver fairies in the last act and so forth. Another thing he did was to have the prince on his way to the bedchamber, uh, sword in hand, like in the Disney film, uh, do away with Carabas right before he plants the kiss. Originally, uh, he just made his way to the castle, and it seems as though he didn't know what to do when he got to the princess, and Lilac had to say, think, and then he... Uh, planted the kiss, which was likely on her forehead. Uh, and Carabas wasn't killed, and she was duly invited to the wedding because they weren't going to leave her off the list again, and she came. So that was the original production. I think it was a little bit more about uh, getting the balance right, if you will, a little bit more of a medieval idea of the balance of good and evil just needs to be correctly weighed. Uh, but in ours, it's the triumph. Of course, so that is the that's one of the differences. We get to the wedding, and here uh, Aurora is grown up and fully realized, if you will. And uh, in addition to the wedding pas de deux duet with the prince, uh, a number of fairy tale characters have been invited: Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, uh, the Bluebird and Princess Florine, which is one people don't know so well. Um, oh, and there were all kinds in the original. There was Rapunzel. There was Tom Thumb and his brothers and a man-eater. I mean, it, it was a lot. Um, we give you the classic ones. And uh, interestingly, I think this is uh, an interesting point, that the fairies that are invited this time or that are featured are fairies of gold and silver. And there was also a, a diamond and a sapphire fairy. And they represented material wealth, and it was very different than the fairies at the prologue who were instilling attributes and characteristics on an infant. Uh, and here we have the sort of, if you will, industrial age influence. And, uh, and also the piano replaces the harp in this last act, which is very much an industrial age instrument. So you can see there, were, there was a lot of thought going on into what was supposed to be a very light ballet, and I think there's still a lot more to find out about it. But uh, you're going to see all four acts here tonight. Uh, we don't have post-performance Q&A this time around because it's really a long evening, and they're really tired at the end. So, uh, but we'll resume that next time around. But I, I have a couple minutes yet for questions if you'd like to ask. Yes, please. Yes, Carabas has traditionally been danced by a man. It was Enrico Cicchetti, the Italian dancer and ballet master at the first performance. Oftentimes, if it was a, uh, a, uh, a female uh, character villain, that, that villain would be portrayed by a man in a sort of grotesque uh, in a sort of a grotesque character, if you will. Madge, who is the villain in La Silphide, was uh, usually a man as well. Mm -hmm. there, are a, there are a number of productions, though, with a female Carabas, New York City Ballets, and so forth. So um, it's not gender specific. Yes. Jonathan Preda is really retiring. He is. Jonathan had a very uh, serious injury about a year ago, and he's coming back, but uh, he really felt that that was, a, that was the signal for him to, to determine when his retirement would be, which will be this June. 
we, yes, we all love him, and it's nice to have him back on stage, and he's enjoying this. So, yeah. He does, yes. Yes, please. That's the plan, and thank you for asking. What do we do with this production, the physical production? We do plan to sell it, and it will probably go to a probably to a smaller company. There may be companies that share the production uh, who will be able to use it, and uh, probably not on the scope. Um, this production has something like 900 costumes and accessory pieces. Um, with all the hats and the shoes and the wigs, it's really massive. But it will still have a life, just probably not in the in this form, in this full form. Yes, please. Um, is it falling apart? It's not falling apart because we keep it together. But also, the English national ballet bodies were quite a bit smaller than than the average body in our company, which means a lot of uh, uh, work has been done on the costumes to make them work for us, which does tend to compromise some of those. Uh, and we just think that uh, because this ballet has a place in the repertory, it's time for us to have one that's tailored to us. So I think that's the thinking there. This is the fifth time we've had it in repertory since 2000. So it's, it's been a great ballet for us and afforded a lot of opportunities to dancers. I did want to say the other casts. Uh, Laura Tisserand makes her debut tomorrow with Dylan Wald uh, in the matinee. In the evening, Lita Biasucci with Lucien Postlewaite. They're both coming back to the role. Uh, next week, Angelica Generosa with Seth Orza. That's her debut. She has uh, Thursday and Saturday next week. Rachel Foster's returning to the role, but Kyle Davis is with her making his debut. So a lot of new new dancers. And these are big roles. These are sort of defining moments that show a level of achievement. It's very apropos to the story, if you will. So, All right, well, we're at time. So glad that you're all here. I think you're in for a great evening. Thanks for supporting the ballet.